We're welcoming Amy Bucher on this show. She is the author of Engaged Designing for Behavior Change. We are including a link in the show notes for this wonderful book. The book is the first um, time that I really came across her. And it turns out that, you know, as you spend more and more time in this space, you hear this name come up a lot. So I was very curious to to meet the author behind these great words. Um, by this space, for those who are perhaps not um, as familiar, I, I'm talking about this idea of uh, changing behaviors, of helping people take ownership of their of their healthy lifestyle, maybe people with chronic diseases, um, starting to pick up good habits and make the changes that they need. And as anyone <laughs> who has dabbled into healthy living, even for yourselves, but maybe maybe for patients, maybe for people you you work with, um, knows it is always a very difficult feat to um you know pick oneself up and and find the the right path to change your behaviors but it can be done and amy actually helps us think a little bit about how to nudge and how to help people go into that direction um amy actually is in the industry right now so she is the vice president for behavior change design at MadPow, but she also has a background uh, that started in academia. And I think that is really fascinating because more and more, I think we see this cross-pollinization happen from universities into uh, seeping into in the industry. Um, I know, especially with, with research roles and so on, that's something that's very relevant to have a, a more robust background there. But I'm always amazed when I meet people like that on the market because, um, you know, you could do a research and you could put it on a shelf and no one could, could ever see it and you could just collect dust. Or you can go out into the world and try to make it be more actualized and um, actionable. And I think this second wave is something we're seeing more and more. Um, of course, it's great to have papers even in the academia, even if they're not applied. But I, I find it really beautiful when, when these great ideas escape from strictly the academia um, realm and really affect people in their daily lives that's i think the the dream of every person that ever does a, a research so without much more ado we're going to dive right in and i will add if you ever do have uh, you know if you're enjoying this show if you're listening to this and you're thinking i want to learn more i want to spend a bit more time um, reading a little bit more about that i'm going to link to her blog articles also on her personal website which i think are fantastic and it's just the the great little thing if you ever have a a coffee break and you want to take a little five minute break and, and just think about something else and dive into something you're curious about it always makes for a great read um so let's dive into this question of relevance before we start because as everyone knows by now we're talking about patient engagement but it has come to my attention that patient engagement, you know, like the business case behind this can be very different depending on the country you're, you're from. We have a lot of listeners, obviously, from the U.S., but we also have some that, you know, are in other countries or come from other countries. Um, and so I wanted to start by just exploring this idea. How does it make sense from like an ROI perspective? Why would I invest in something like patient engagement? Yeah, so... One of the things that I say to people all the time, because my my expertise and my focus is on behavior change, is that the really meaningful behaviors take place in people's daily lives. So they're, they're the choices that people make when they're going about their day, 
And um, when you think about patient engagement, that that is kind of the necessary link between anything that a company or a healthcare provider might deliver and those day-to-day behaviors. So you, you really need to have the patient interested in taking those actions and mindful of the opportunities to do the quote-unquote healthy or right thing throughout the day. And, and I mean, from a business model perspective, we want to see certain things changing. So like, for example, one of the, the large cost drivers that I see in my work is use of emergency medical services or unplanned medical visits. So one of the um, outcomes that clients I work with often look for is, are we making it so that people are planning their doctor's appointments? They're making setting up the appointment, they're going in, they're getting preventative care instead of waiting until something becomes so much of an issue that they're going to the emergency room, which is more expensive. And also if you're there, you probably have a a more serious issue to treat as well. So um, all those engagement behaviors are are designed or intended to get people to take action kind of earlier and more frequently so that they're using the healthcare system in a a more thoughtful and planned way and not letting things get out of control. But um, yeah, it, it absolutely changes depending on the business models. Right, and and if you're looking at things like readmission rates too, I know that um, comorbidity is often uh, correlated, you know, with a very bad outcomes in surgery. Basically, the more of these things you accumulate, the harder it becomes for that surgery to be successful and to have a short length of stay and so on. Um, and I think the value-based uh, system that we've shifted towards really does put a little bit more pressure in a system that used to be very um, not not siloed, but you know, with a multi-payer system and with um, the, the ecosystem, it's very different from perhaps other places. I think in, in a place like, uh, I look at Canada, at Europe, so a lot of those systems where healthcare is also aligned with um, public health because it's a single payer system, that probably also makes a huge difference because um, it allows people to basically be efficient, right? If, if I can prescribe things to you and patient engagement can be used for medication but it can be used for um, healthy life changes like you're you're mentioning so if if the patient takes on a portion of that um, responsibility then I guess the outcomes can be improved at a lower cost. Yeah yeah and I think you also see in a system like the United States where all of the players in the ecosystem are not aligned sometimes there are perverse incentives so one thing that you'll occasionally see in the news is a story of a you know a provider or a healthcare system who invests in a really expensive piece of testing equipment, and then it becomes to their advantage to use that. So they may recommend tests that otherwise you know don't make as much sense. Mm-hmm. Can you tell a little bit about cash-based systems too? I know the the ones that you've been exposed to have had reforms um, since then, but just to give us an extra perspective maybe on other parts of the world and how that might take. Yeah, one of my, this is actually one of my all-time favorite projects I ever worked on. It was when I was working for Johnson & Johnson. So Johnson & Johnson is a global company and they have a presence in India. Their um, company there is called J&J Medical India. And we worked together with LifeScan, which at the time was also a J&J company, and they make the meters and strips that people use to test their blood sugar. And my company, which was also part of the Johnson & Johnson family, was called Wellness and Prevention. And we, we built software that helped people with behavior change. It provided them with coaching that was really personalized and um, real time so that they could do all of those kind of lifestyle behaviors that help with health outcomes. So we were working together with LifeScan and then with J&J Medical India to build this comprehensive system for people with type 2 diabetes to help them better manage their, their condition overall, like all of the lifestyle stuff, all of the testing, all of the medication. And I spent some time in India going to clinics in different cities to understand what the situation was like. And one of the things that was really interesting to me at the time 
it was a cash pay healthcare system in India. So patients paid fully out of pocket for every everything that they did. And what ended up happening was it was almost like any other consumer experience where patients would go see the doctors they liked and they demanded a certain level of, of service for the, the price that they were paying. And at the same time, one of the, the dynamics that was going on is there was a perception in that culture that insulin was an end of life drug. So if you were taking insulin, it meant that you were very, very sick. And people as a result were really reluctant to take insulin. It was alarming and upsetting if a doctor suggested it. And so what ended up happening was doctors wouldn't suggest it because if they did, the patients would get upset and they'd go find another doctor who wasn't going to try to make them take this end of life drug. And it was perpetuating the, the cycle of perceiving insulin as being a really serious thing because what happened was if insulin was the best choice for you and you're not taking it, your condition is going to get worse and eventually you really, really need the insulin. So yeah, that was, that was a really different situation because and just change the dynamics of thinking about what it meant to engage the patient. They they were really thinking about healthcare system and their providers in a really different way. Right, and and this idea of the patient as a customer, I think we're starting to see it in the American market too, in a little bit um, of a different way, but with a shift in what they call a healthcare consumerism. So we have more and more um, big tech players that are coming in. They're they're coming not from within the healthcare um, native ecosystem, but they're coming really from outside, and they they look at it like retail almost. They see the, the customer, and that is interesting too, because in that case, the customer is the user and the payer, which mm -hmm. is very different from our healthcare system where those the decision maker may be completely different than the person that uses your solution and the person that pays for it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting in the United States because I think we're seeing this consumerization consumerization at the higher end of the scale. So for people who are what you know relatively wealthier and able to pay for kind of high-end care experiences. It'll be interesting to see if anything happens in terms of healthcare reform at you know the government level because I think that will make a difference as to whether those sorts of services become more widely available or if it remains sort of this high-end experience. Yeah, and I would add too, I think as it becomes more and more also, I think there's a lot of reforms that are changing that are now covering healthcare, not just in the hospital, but they're now expanding to the person's home and the person's community. And that I think will also change a little bit the, the, the tone or the, the way in which we relate with a patient because you cannot control someone. I mean, it's easier when they're in your office and you're facing them and you're having that talk, but when they go back home, and you could make money basically out of a model that treats people outside and maybe preventively and that's a completely different shift but then you have to look at motivation because that's something that before maybe i did it because my doctor told me mm -hmm. but now i have to continually do an action every day on my own and tap into that internal motivation yeah yeah i i mean i feel like for as long as i've been working in healthcare i've heard people talking about the phrase that that i often hear used is the patient-centered medical home which is really this idea that healthcare goes beyond the walls of the office and it's offered in the places where people live their lives. I think it's starting to become more of a reality because first of all, the technology that enables that has become more widely available. It's less expensive now. Um, so it is becoming a little bit more democratized just from the technology sense. And then just in the last few months, I think there's been a really rapid shift because of coronavirus and people needing to stay at home toward uh, making telemedicine accessible and thinking a little bit differently about how to deliver care. So one of the things I, I hope is that as we recover from this virus, um, you know, it can go back to some of the traditional ways of interacting, that at least from a legal perspective, because that, that was a big thing in the United States is that the payment models weren't reimbursing telehealth the same way they were reimbursing other care. And so those laws changed really rapidly. 
to accommodate coronavirus, I hope that they continue to allow telemedicine because I think that we're seeing more people access better care when they need it, when they have more mechanisms available to them to do it. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm actually going to include a link here because what you're saying is so true. The, um, it's been said that the coronavirus has basically allowed experimentation in a place that because of HIPAA and other regulations um, and, and policies, it's often a, a space that's harder to experiment. And so this crisis with telehealth has basically boosted a technology that would have taken a, a much longer time to penetrate. Yeah, yeah. I can't um, speak too, too much about it, but I'm working with one health plan client right now um, looking at behavioral health. And one of the things they said is that they delivered more telemedicine behavioral health in their first quarter this year, which just March was the only month that was really affected by coronavirus. So we're really just talking about one month than they did in all of 2019. And that is really promising to me because behavioral health in particular is one area where we know people aren't receiving the services that they could benefit from. It's really, you know, there's a shortage of providers and it's really difficult for people to connect with them. So if we can make behavioral health more accessible to people who can benefit, like that's, that's amazing. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. <laughs> um, now, let me let me tap into this idea, uh, which you brought a little bit in terms of like motivation. We talked a little bit about this. I want to dive into a little more. So the, the first time I got exposed to it, this used to be called resistance. Now it's like ambivalence. I guess the, the vocabulary changes over time. Um, but I'm uh, very curious. First and foremost, it sounds so um, intuitive that someone would go through a process and make their own decisions um, and this is something I've actually asked uh, on another episode to a social worker why is there a need for accompaniment in that kind of patient journey why can't a person just by themselves decide that they'll quit smoking they'll you know get healthier oh boy I mean it's there's a lot there are a lot of reasons why it's important to you know be there for people as they're making these health behavior changes they're very complicated changes. They take a lot of effort and we have a lot of forces that work against making behavior changes. So ex experts can provide a lot of different types of assistance depending on what any individual patient or person needs for help. So, um, you know, I don't typically use the stage stages of change model very often. Um, it's not, but I, you know, I think there is something to be said for, there are sometimes people who just aren't even in the mindset to think about making a change. And in those cases, what an expert can do is provide some information, basically put, put the knowledge in front of the person and say, okay, you don't have to make a change now, but just so you know, here are some things you could do. Here's a picture of a future that you could live in. And what that does is plant the seeds for change to come somewhere down the road. Um, so I think that's one thing that is really valuable that we can all do um, just in terms of education and communication and letting people know what is possible so that they can come around to it in their own time when, when their motivation is ready. And then um, some of what experts can do is actually facilitate lifting barriers out of people's way. So you may have all the motivation in the world, but that doesn't mean that it's easy to do the change. And an expert can help with things like, like in the case of smoking cessation, nicotine replacement therapy is something that can be enormously helpful for people. The data now is pretty clear that people who use nicotine replacement therapy do better. And I, I don't think that that is necessarily something most people know. If anything, I think there's a cultural perception that it's maybe weak or bad to be using those sorts of therapies like the uh, nicotine gum or the patch. And so an expert can be really helpful in letting you know that, no, this is actually a really great tool and let me help you get access to it. And maybe let me help you get reimbursement for it from your health plan so that you're not paying out of pocket for it. 
Um, so lifting those sorts of barriers and being very kind of like practically helpful to somebody, um, it's not, it, it's like making it so that their motivation can actually have the effect that you hope it has. Right. And, and this is interesting because there's a human element to that interaction, but it's also on the flip side, very costly. If every time for every decision point I have, I need a human being that meets with me, that might not be very scalable for a system. So then you might look at technology as maybe a way to complement these things. Yeah. And, you know, most of my career, I actually have worked primarily on digital tools that, that do that sort of thing. And so um, I mentioned I, I used to work for a company at Johnson & Johnson called Wellness and Prevention. That originally was a startup called Health Media. And the entire premise of it was we built, it was all based on algorithms that we created, but we would gather information about an individual either through self-report or we could connect to an EMR or that, you know, if there were other data sources, we could basically set it up so that we were pulling data in. And then we could deliver personalized information, advice, coaching to them based on what we learned. And, um, you know, I don't think that that completely replaces the role of a human by any means, but it can augment it and it can really provide a lot of that information and kind of that just-in-time care so that, as, as you said, you don't overburden the system in terms of having to use a live expert all the time. I think this idea of personalization is really interesting because a lot of experts have this intuition built in, like they've been in the field for 20, 30, 40 years and they see a patient and they just feel like, oh, this argument might, might work really great. Mm -hmm. But um, when it comes to technology, I think this is one of the interesting things as a designer, like if you're in the healthcare design space, then you have to make decisions and even in the data analytics portion of it, there's a strong human bias because what I decide to measure and collect or even how I run that design research will strongly inform what, what you know, basically what I'm basing my um, conclusions on, right? And so when it comes to motivation, it's such a huge field. How do you know that what you're really looking into is the right thing so that you could say these are really motivational factors and not just I picked up, I mean, I guess you could statistically say this is more relevant, but it, it would cost a lot to just go across the field as opposed to narrowing it down when you are researching, but that's a bias. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple ways that we try to combat that. So one one tool that we use a lot in the design work I do is actually the literature review. So we look at the work that's already out there that's been published and try to build off of what's already known in a problem space. And so that, that helps narrow the universe at the outset and um, you know, hopefully build some good science into the product from from the start. And I, I won't pretend that the peer-reviewed literature is not subject to its own biases, but the idea, the hope is that because it has gone through that review process, it should be somewhat, you know, valid and neutral. So we, we start from there, but also, you know, building a lot of different types of research into the design process and making sure that you're including a lot of different types of people in that research. So doing early formative research that's really specific to your project. You know, what is the technology that you're building and what is the context that it will be used in and what are the types of people who will be using it? Um, testing early prototypes or, or even concepts, ideas. We do that sometimes where we, we may not have anything to show. It's maybe a verbal description um, or sometimes we'll do storyboards. We'll actually do like little visual comic strips that show what someone's experience might be like, but the product itself doesn't exist. And seeing how people react to that and how they think they might use it. And then, of course, there's also the, the more quantitative data collection that you can do, especially when something's out in the market and, you know, continually looking at your data and seeing, is this actually accomplishing the outcomes that I hope it does? When I talk to my users, are they experiencing, a, a, you know, is this a good experience for them or is it something that they really dislike? And being willing to go back and make changes, incremental changes too, because um, 
you know, just because something isn't working perfectly doesn't mean that the idea isn't valid, that there's nothing there. It might mean that there are details that need to be reworked. And so one thing that I, I encourage product teams to think about is just having that willingness to go back and look at the details again and make those small changes, tweak, and then ultimately, hopefully the product ends up doing what you want it to do. And it, it does raise that idea of innovation because a lot of, and, and like, the, the thing that I find fascinating when I'm listening to talk is there is still that idea that even though there has been research done, there is still more and perhaps a different research to be done. It's not necessarily that I translate this and it goes straight into, you know, this app. And I think that's interesting because when you, you look at heuristics in general, you know, even the way that our icons and our desktops are done, you know, and it's a folder because back then it was a folder, right? Or it's a document or, and this, makes me smile a little bit because as I look in terms of how we we do this in healthcare, we, we do do it too. Like if I look at the EHR, which which turned out maybe not as um, great as the potential everyone was expecting them to have, right? The electronic health record, it, it was literally they took what existed and tried to somehow make it into a, you know, piece of software that replicated everything. And I think this this is something I've been looking into a lot in terms of how do we design for healthcare because there's a lot of things that already exist and they work well on paper. Does that mean that necessarily you can just transpose them or there's that additional thought that you need as you're looking into an experience that's digital? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you say that. And I have to laugh too, because the save icon is the floppy disk. And, you know, I remember using those, but I think a lot of people who are working in healthcare today, like probably started, you know, they'd never had to use a floppy disk. They probably have no idea what it is. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really hard thing as human beings because we build up these mental models of how the world works. And then when we are given access to new technology or new form factors, it can be really difficult to not just translate what we knew in the old form factor into the new one. So, you know, the, the EMR is a great example because you're right, it is basically just taking what a medical record used to look like and making an electronic version of it that is really similar except for being digital. And that isn't necessarily the best way to do it. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I think, to get back to research again, we do a lot of co-creation with people and that's not to say that we actually like invite them to sit down and write requirements with us and like truly be part of the the design team and that kind of like hardcore it's your full-time job and you're getting paid for it way but um it, one of our research activities is we have people come in and engage in some creative activities with us so not just tell us about your experience and what you hope to see but like actually make something show us what a solution might look like and what we find in doing these things is that um, people who don't know a lot about the field, who don't have all those assumptions and mental models that we bring with us as experts, sometimes just have really fabulous creative ideas that help us change the way that we're thinking too. And it's really worthwhile to sit down at a table and I mean, we give people like pipe cleaners and googly eyes and you know, modeling clay and popsicle sticks. So we're, we're really truly like, go craft something for us. But we learn a lot from them about what could be instead of just thinking about, you know, translating what is. So um, the more that we can involve people, I think, who don't have a lot of expertise and background and talk to them in a way that is designed to elicit those sorts of ideas, I think we benefit from it. That takes a lot of humility, I think, because often when you come in on as an expert to be able to say, you know, I'm going to be humble and, and learn from a layperson essentially is a... Uh... It's very nice to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, 
I know from work, because I, I also work as a consultant, so we're, we work with all kinds of different clients. And I think that one of the things we see a lot too is skepticism on their part that this approach might work because they haven't seen it before. It's, I think it's becoming a little bit more common now, but it's just a relatively new thing to invite people into the research process in this co-creation sort of role. And there's always this moment, I love it. It's one of my favorite things about my job. When we are um, facilitating one of these groups and having people go through the activity with a new client who's never done it before. First of all, there's the moment when you walk in the room with a box of crafts and they, you can just see on their face, they're like, what is this? This is, <laughs> like, this is not a professional thing, what's going on? But then there's always a point during the day when it clicks and they realize, oh, we're getting really intense, like insightful feedback from people because we are making their brains work in a way that we don't typically ask people's brains to work. Like we're helping them access some really deep insights about what they want in the world. And I just love that moment. Um, and I, I do, I look at the client a lot during the workshops because I want to see that moment when the light bulb clicks on. Yeah, and that's also, it means you're very competent at that point because if you can like know the content inside out and the format you're delivering, but you're really focused on the relationship with people, I think that's a lot of things for your brain to kind of juggle at the same time. Yeah, well, and I, I will I will give credit to you. I work with, um, you know, an amazing team of people. We always work as teams when we facilitate these things and that helps too because I don't have to worry about every single detail. I can carve out a little bit of time to pay attention to the relationship. Yeah, that is true. That team, yeah, do help. Um, the thing that I think is also interesting is like how you can take someone who's very reluctant to still give it a chance because co-creation requires people to still be in that space where they're comfortable with ambiguity, mm -hmm. where they might not get what you're going and especially if they don't know them. I found there's a huge trade-off because you're there on amended and you have that like very limited amount of time and so there's always like how much do I educate versus how much do we just go on board and you gotta I gotta build trust somehow and it's not gonna be with you know an educational speech right yeah yeah I mean there's there's interesting dynamics when you do this research because first of all anyone who's there in the room with you is someone who is interested in participating right they, they somehow got their name on a recruiter list or raised their hand to be there. So there, there is this base willingness, um, which is good. You can work with that. And it's almost like if you've ever read the Robert Cialdini's um, Tactics of Influence and Persuasion, like um, you can basically point to that evidence like, hey, you are a person who does research because you're here in the room. I know, I know that this is a thing about you. Um, and you, you can kind of use it as the start of building a snowball. But um, you know, we do compensate people for the research as well. And I think that that um, increases their willingness to participate, even if they're rolling their eyes, like they, they will usually start the activity. But I think what's really important actually is once they get going, once they actually take the first few steps to participate in these activities, I think they realize too, like, oh, I'm actually saying stuff that matters. Like I, I'm saying things that people could use to build a product or to improve a service. And so I think it's almost like they prove it to themselves as they start to engage. And then, um, you know, we usually find by the end of the session, people are, are really into it. They're having a good time. And I think they um, realize that even though the activities feel fun and maybe frivolous, they're talking about serious stuff. Yeah, and I think in the feedback, it comes out often. Um, they're like, oh, I wish it could have not been as rushed or we could have had more time. And that's when you realize, okay, that's that's a success right there if that's your your end feedback in the end. Yeah, one of my favorite things that has happened to me just a few times in research sessions, but it always makes me realize like this was a great session and I, I feel like I did a good job, is when someone comes up to me afterwards and they either say that they learned something about themselves or that they are going to make a change in their life based on something that we talked about. 
So there have been a few times where that happened. Um, actually, the last time I ran some of these groups, um, someone came up to me afterwards and said, wow, you know, and some of it is learning from each other as well, because we do this in a group format oftentimes. But, you know, someone came up to me and was just like, I had never thought about some of this stuff before. And now when I go home, I have a couple of things that I'm going to do. And I'm just, you know, really excited that my life is going to be a little bit better in this one way because of it. I love that as a success criteria. I feel like that should be everyone's success criteria. Then, then you know, you, you've nailed it home. Yeah. Um, do, do you, like, how do you think about constraints? Because this, I think personally, I love constraints because I feel they shape the, the problem space. You were talking earlier about having people who know nothing about the field, which means they probably don't know about the constraints. How, how do you navigate this? Is, is constraint an enemy or an, a, a friend? Um, I think it's both. It, I think it depends where in your process you are. So um, one of the things that we use a lot to talk about our process is the UK Design Council's double diamond model. And it basically just alternates between times of convergence and divergence. So in a, I, I always compare it to Marie Kondo, you know, the, um, the Kondo method of cleaning out your closets and your drawers. So you start by emptying everything out and putting it in the space where you can see it. And then once you know what your, your solution set might be, you can start to whittle down and focus in on the, the pieces that make sense. So I think that when you're in a converging phase, I'm sorry, a diverging phase, like early on when you're doing your formative research, that's where it makes a lot of sense to have your naive uh, collaborators, you know, the people who aren't bringing necessarily deep subject matter expertise, but may have lived experience or creative ideas, and you're asking them to contribute to that potential solution set. But then you do need to start to focus in, and that's where the constraints are your friend. So a lot of times what we do after we finish doing some formative research is we'll have a collaborative workshop with our clients. So I always think of the research participants, those are, are my divergent friends. They're, they're going to bring the creative ideas, the insights, the new the new stuff that we haven't thought of. But then the clients are coming and they have their constraints, they have their business metrics, they know what outcomes they need to achieve in order for their leadership to feel happy. And so we filter what we heard from those workshops. Like we, we basically say, these are the top ideas that we heard. These are the insights that we wanna bring into the design process. Let's filter them through your business intelligence. Let's really understand where the constraints might let us play and where the constraints are gonna cut some of these ideas off. And then, um, you know, we can start to really hone in on product requirements and, and building the thing, whatever it ends up being. So it depends on the part of the process. But I agree with you when you're in that part of the process. I think it is really fun sometimes to say, okay, we have these like creative, amazing, broad ideas. Now let's try to make them fit into this particular shape. So I, I think it's a, a fun creative exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And this this thing that you're bringing up is also interesting because you're, you're talking about you know, there's the, that creative phase, there's that research phase, and then there's like the team that has, you know, the product owner and your backlog and, and those more um, concrete things that we need to provide. What do you think that gap is? Because, you know, when I listen to you talk, it just seems so common sense. And it's like, well, of course, every app out there should be, you know, first of all, sexy, because as we've spoken about, people come from a retail world, they have these expectations on how it should perform. And then you're also thinking it should be very intuitive because that's the whole goal of patient engagement is don't make my life hard, right? Mm -hmm. um, what What is that gap that, you know, we have access to so many ideas, we already have so many frameworks, and yet, you know, in the implementation, you look at apps and so few really, well, maybe not so few, there are more and more um, great ones, but so often you find an experience that's maybe disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is, is actually what we're re rewarded on, which, it connects back to your question as well about payment models in the healthcare system and how does that affect engagement. I think it's the same in the work that we do. If you are a product owner 
and your performance is you know reviewed by your ability to meet deadlines and perhaps i don't know have x number of downloads of your product whatever those metrics are as human beings we focus on success metrics that's just the way that our brains work we're always looking for evidence that we're successful in the world so <laughs> like what we get measured on ends up being how we perform and unfortunately a lot of times you get different people who are focusing on different parts of a product or experience who don't have aligned metrics associated with what they're doing so your product owner may really be looking at you know getting the product out into people's hands and having people engage with it you may have a scientific advisor who's really focused on making sure that the content of that product is accurate um, and then you may have somebody who's designing it and they're really focused on making it beautiful and if they're not aligned if they're if you know, if they don't have metrics that say, no, it actually has to be all three. It has to be scientifically valid. It has to be engaging and it has to be marketed and put out in the world in a way where people are going to use it. Then they're going to work at cross purposes sometimes. And I think that's what we see happen a lot. Um, you know, having worked so much in health technology, there are so many apps that are in terms of their content, like the, the intervention that's contained within them. They're amazing. They're just totally scientifically accurate. They uh, will produce results but they're ugly and they're hard to use and they're like kind of boring and you know maybe they're not written in a way that's accessible to the average person because they're written by a scientist for other scientists. And then on the other hand, you sometimes will see apps, um, and this is something I, I'm starting to see change because more consumer companies are hiring scientists, which is fabulous. But especially like five, 10 years ago, you would see these health behavior change apps and they were really like beautiful and fun and easy to use, but there was nothing behind them. They, they didn't have a lot of substance to them. And so they weren't producing results. So it's really about, um, you know, get it, getting people with these different skill sets and focus areas to work together and making sure that what you're measuring them on is aligned, that like you're actually metricing them so they can work as a team. I think you're also raising a market dynamic point, which maybe you haven't made explicit, but it's, it's out there lurking in the background because when there are so few alternatives, you it's, it's like the easy hanging fruit, right? If I have nothing else and my alternative is this little notebook where I have to write myself every time I do something and then you introduce, even if it's a horrible user experience, but you introduce something that's already a step up, already like looks ugly, it's not super motivating, but at least it's not a hassle. Then, then you're skimming that market. Like there's a certain portion of the market that will naturally go towards that. And I think as there's more and more players, which is what we start to see more and more because there's the hospitals and the insurances that are coming to do that. There's the big tech companies with like Apple Watch and all these apps that are coming in. There's independent ones that come in as just technologists, right? As the market gets more saturated, I think it's going to generally, uh, this is a total hypothesis, but my reading of the market is that The, the bar has to raise because if all my other competitors you know are doing the strict minimum then the only way for me to get the higher market share is to deliver something extra and that something extra increasingly i think is going to be not necessarily that scientific accuracy because that's already being done but i think it's going to be that extra level of how do i keep people engaged and how do i keep you using this app as opposed to going to a competitor Yeah, and I, I'm really excited actually about where we are in uh, terms of the industry. One of the things that I'm seeing now for the first time in my career is people who are more academic are playing really nicely with people who are more on the design side. And I'm, I'm talking even like I, I know of a few researchers who work for universities who are now partnering with 
commercial organizations to test their apps. So like, okay, you've built this health behavior change app, let's actually do some research with it and see if it works and see how we can make it work better. And you know, what kinds of support services and improvements might actually improve it. So um, I think that's really promising and it's really exciting to me too, because I feel like I've, I've had one foot in two different worlds for a long time because I was academically trained, but then I moved over to industry. And so I, I speak both languages, but I kind of, you know, I, I guess I'm more in the industry at this point. Um, and it seems like a tension for a long time, but now I feel like we're finally all figuring out how to work together and make sure that these various skills are improving the industry for everybody. That is true. There's There's been a lot of moves in the market. So one of them is that trend that you're saying, uh, universities partnering up or institutions that are partnering up with the private sector. There's been a lot of mergers and acquisitions or um, health systems. So, you know, insurances that are now also tapping into um, hospitals and the data is still separate at this point, which I think makes a lot of sense from a legal um, protection standpoint, but it's it's an interesting dynamic. Um, and I also see like this idea of other disciplines because more and more in terms of design firms, um, we've seen the acquisition by bigger consulting firms like um, McKinsey, Accenture, BCG, and they are having those uh, small boutique shops that are now attached to them in terms of design. So that's, that's another area where I think there's a lot of knowledge transfer, I'm guessing, from previous clients that they have and things like that. So how do you see on the market this, um, is, is this idea of patient engagement becoming less pure? Did it used to be strictly you had to have a degree in um, behavior change, like science, I'm not sure how you would call that discipline, uh, or psychology to be able to work in it? Are we now seeing crossings between industries? I think what we're seeing is more people realizing that patient engagement either always has been or should be important to the work that they do. So I, I don't know if I would say it's ever been pure. Um, you know, I, I am thinking back to some of the earlier jobs I had, which were very much focused on patient engagement. And I think that the people influential in shaping those products came from a variety of backgrounds. Um, and I've been very lucky that I've worked for companies that typically have really embraced patient engagement and really put the patient at the center of the design process. So that's not the case everywhere. And I know a lot of people who work in the area haven't had that. But in my case, I have. And, you know, my experience has been it was never really that pure. But what we would see is we would go talk to potential clients. Um, often they would be health health systems or, um, you know, hospitals or large employer groups that are self-funded insurance. And they wouldn't necessarily agree that patient engagement was important. And so we would have to, um, you know, make a strong, either make a strong case for that or almost like leave it to the side. Like, okay, we don't have to talk about patient engagement. We're gonna do what we do. You can think about it however you wanna think about it. But you'll do the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I have gone to the HIMSS conference. Have you ever gone to that one? I, I've heard, I haven't been to that one in particular, but it's, uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's, it's I'm it's not gonna great. remember. It's like health informatics. It's it's a an IT focused healthcare conference, and it's huge. It's like forty thousand attendees every year. They come from all over the world, and I've attended it a couple of times. And what amazes me is that I think they're still figuring out in some ways, like the tech folks, that patient engagement is really important, and um, they're excited about it. So like I'm not trying to um, ding the spirit of of the conference or anything. Like they they are really excited about it. But I walk in sometimes. I'm like guys. 
this is not new. <laughs> so they're realizing, um, they're realizing that patient engagement really needs to be built into even something like an EMR, right? Like even if the, the physician is the one who's primarily interacting with that tool, it has implications for what the conversation looks like in the office setting. It has implications for what information about the patient is available to inform treatment decisions, to inform their use of other programs and apps. Like all of these things eventually end up coming back to the patient and this idea of having the patient be an active participant in their own care and their own experience. Yeah, and I think um, when you're looking at something like HIMSS, the, the players that are there, I think have a point in regards to the integration of the systems. And this is something that to me is very striking about the healthcare system. And, and it's also an advantage to the non-healthcare players, which is that healthcare comes with a legacy. Like there are systems in place and it's very hard, I think, to shift the needle because you don't build from scratch the way that you might do a you know, native first type of thinking, you're building on top of an entire infrastructure and an entire set of regulations that I think make innovation maybe more challenging, not impossible, but definitely um, very challenging in that space. And I, that's the feeling I've gotten off, often when I was looking at IT providers and like third parties, is this is a very data heavy um, space. And I think, as you say, there's a huge opportunity to maybe shift towards more um, yeah, the experience of the person behind it, which which is perhaps not, not as intuitive in their roadmap as it is right now. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier too, you know, patient data being stored in all kinds of different places. And, you know, there there are good reasons for a lot of that a lot of times. It's, it's a lot of times to protect patient privacy, to make sure that, you know, the people who have access to the data are the people who can use it and need it and not just a bad actor. But I think we also see a lot of limitations because of the way that patient data is stored and distributed. And one of the things that I would love to see, like in my dream world of the future, is that the data is centered on the patient and not distributed across all of these different systems. I've seen a couple of, you know, just conceptual models. This doesn't exist to my knowledge, but you know, what if you use something like blockchain so that you could associate data with the individual patient and then they can choose to permission it to these various entities as needed and then de-permission it as well so that their data just doesn't exist in, you know, some some database for years on end without people knowing that it's there. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a, a really difficult thing. And you think about patients who are asked to do, um, you know, they maybe are seeing physicians at different medical centers and they have to provide the same information multiple times in order to receive their care because those EMRs aren't speaking to each other. Um, that kind of thing is a, a real burden on patients. It makes it a lot harder for them and it makes it less likely that they're going to receive the quality of care at the frequency that they need it. So I'd love to see that change. Yeah, the, the just-in-time idea that you gave is very interesting. The, the blockchain idea, I think there there has been, um, maybe not a test, but the, there, I have heard of a project with refugees in a, in a refugee camp where they actually implemented it. And I thought um, exactly what you're saying is really cool. But I think there wasn't even that idea that you mentioned that, you know, maybe data can be temporal. Maybe it's not, I give it forever, which I think is very different from how, you know, written record exists. Because if you faxed it to me, it's in your chart and it's not going anywhere. Yeah, and I think we have seen a few examples in the last couple of years where there have been database hacks of basically, you know, it's it's like, um, you know, marketing databases from products that no longer exist, but the database still exists and it's still, that means that data is vulnerable. So one of the things to think about is, does it make sense to just give that data, you know, for the time being for while you need it to provide my care and then it goes away? Yeah. Okay. Now let's jump just a little bit in uh, maybe an example, because I'm very curious, could you show... Um, 
I would like to highlight how not easy, like how difficult that it can actually be or how challenging to translate something that exists in the field that doctors maybe use to something that's a, a patient engagement friendly um, technology. Mm-hmm. Could you um, help explain the gap? Like, why is it hard? Because I have people ask me this all the time and some portion of me feels like it's very intuitive to say, no, it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. But concretely, how do you demonstrate that, you know what, it's not as straightforward as you might think? <laughs> the fastest way to realize that it's not straightforward is to try to do it. <laughs> um, one one area that where I have a lot of experience in um, navigating, I guess, what you know what's expected from two different parties is with health risk assessment tools, which are these um, really comprehensive surveys. They're usually given on an annual basis that inquire about pretty much everything related to people's health, and they're usually um, it's the customers that I've worked with who have health risk assessments, they're usually health plans or again, those large employers. And the reason that they do them is they want to understand what kinds of health challenges exist within their membership so that they can make decisions with their budget about what types of programs to invest in. So if they know that they have zero people in their population with diabetes, they won't be spending money on diabetes programs, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really the purpose of these health risk assessments is almost entirely for the business, not for the, the patient or the person who's taking it, which means that they haven't paid a lot of attention to that user experience over the years. So some of the things that you have to think about are, first of all, they tend to use validated question sets that come out of research. They want to make sure that whatever questions they're asking are accurately reflecting the constructs they're trying to measure. Those validated questions, they are not interesting to read. They don't, they're they not in language that people use when they talk to each other, like they sound like they're from a research survey. And it's really hard when you're thinking about creating something that's user-friendly. You're like, okay, I know you need to use these validated question sets, but this is a terrible user experience. The second thing is because they're usually given on an annual basis, they want to be able to compare their data year over year. And that means that changing the questions can be a problem for them because if they're asking a different version of the question, is it really comparable this year to last year? And so that's another dynamic that you um, that you have to work with. And then the third one is really this, I guess this isn't quite a translation thing, but it's a really important thing to consider is that, like I said, they're really boring surveys and they do tend to be long and people don't like to take them and they don't get a lot of value out of it. And so historically what has happened is organizations have offered an incentive for people to take them, a financial incentive, like you get 50 bucks if you finish the survey. Um, That is not sustainable. (laughs) It means that you have to continue to offer that money every year and in fact, there is this expectation that you might give more money because you know over time like inflation and and as organizations grow and as time goes on like it it usually does not end up being financially sustainable for them so in our design process there's a couple things that we think about so first of all is we um, we've done this a few times now where we create an alternate version of the health risk assessment that is totally user-friendly so we will write rewrite the questions you know we will um, sometimes use different questions or fewer questions that can involve doing some statistics, right? If you have a seven item survey that is designed to get at one thing. So, you know, these are seven questions that are all about nutrition. You can look at those questions statistically and say, actually really only this one question seems to matter. Like this is the one question that predicts overall, is this person's nutrition good or not? So let's just use the one question. So we'll do that kind of thing. And then typically what we're able to do or what we try to do is show that, okay, if you're offering like the fun version and the boring version, let's see how they statistically relate. And if we do our job right, that should be a a pretty high correlation. So it's like you're getting good enough data. 
And then the other thing that I've discovered, so I mentioned there's nothing in it for the user really to do these surveys is, well, let's make it worth their while. And one of the things that we can do that's a really fun design challenge and it doesn't disrupt the data, we can do this even with the boring version of the HRA, is give people feedback. So if I'm asking you all kinds of questions about like, you know, what's your weight, what's your blood pressure, what's your blood sugar, and you're giving me the answers, you're not learning anything about yourself. But if I'm sitting on this data set, you know, and I have healthcare expertise, I can take your answers to some of these questions and start to reflect back to you some interesting things. Um, maybe it's normative feedback. So, you know, did you know that there are 75,000 other people who are really similar to you in this interesting way? Or, you know, maybe it's that two things about yourself that don't seem to be related really are. So, um, like one of the things, this is, wouldn't come up on an HRA, I don't know why it just popped into my head, but if you're allergic to latex, you might also be allergic to pineapple. Like that kind of thing is is really interesting and there's opportunities to say that sort of thing through a health risk assessment, although not that one specifically. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think we need to be respectful sometimes of the things, the reasons why things are the way they are. Like it makes sense that the organization is going to need to have a certain quality of data in order for this tool to work for them. But then thinking creatively about, okay, well, how can we still get you to that objective, maybe in a slightly different way that also helps us serve the patient? Do you think that the importance of pleasing that patient will go down as more and more tools can collect data without your consent or without your active input? Do, do we need to worry about the human in the future? Oh boy, I hate that question. <laughs> because I, I think you're right that that is a possibility that, um, and it worries me that there are so many ways that companies can access data about people without their permission or knowledge. And, or, you know, and I think sometimes what happens as well, like I think it's iTunes has like a 200 page user agreement that you have to agree to when you first start using it. And of course, nobody is ever going to read that whole thing. So they may be consenting to use of their data that they aren't aware they're consenting to. So yes, it worries me that there may be people who say, we don't have to worry about the patient experience because we can just get all this data from, you know, whatever, their wearables, their cell phones, their, their commercial uh, products that they're using. I think as a professional working in the field, it is an ethical obligation for me and for others like me to work against those dynamics. Um, and, and I do think that there are quite a few high profile people who are out there actively talking about ethics, um, working against these sorts of dynamics, trying to make sure that users are informed and respected and treated correctly and that we're not using data in ways that they wouldn't approve of if they were aware. So um, I hope that it doesn't come to that. I hope that the focus ends up being on the harder work of creating a really good experience that engages people. But yes, that is like a black mirror possibility that it doesn't go that way. So big data could tell us what and maybe how do you think big data can tap into the why, why people do something? And it's important to know why they do something to get them to do do it. <laughs> yeah, I think it could. Um, you know, I think it's it's a devil's in the details kind of thing. It, it um, you know, I, I've been thinking about artificial intelligence recently, and like, how do you use artificial intelligence to connect with people in kind of a motivating way? And a lot of it comes down to the data that you use to train it, and the data that you collect with it, and making good decisions about that. Um, I don't know what the right answer looks like, but I think that with a lot of thought, we probably could start to connect with people's motivations 
And again, you know, I mentioned I use literature reviews a lot. And one of the things that I find myself going back to quite frequently when I'm building technology solutions that have something to do with motivation is research on human values. Because there has been research that's found there are some things that people consistently value across cultures, across age groups, across demographics. Um, and you can kind of make an educated guess when you're building a program. If you can't query somebody directly and find out what they personally value, you can you can get in the neighborhood. So these universal values tend to be things like family and community and um, you know professional accomplishment. Um, some surveys have found that connection with nature is a really frequently valued thing for people. And so if we know that there are kind of these areas that are likely to be important to somebody that are likely to motivate their behavior, we can start to build our solutions in that direction. Can you talk to a last point, uh, because I know we're, we're going to wrap up soon, but can you talk to a last point about the bias? Because you're mentioning surveys, you're mentioning things that people are talking about. We're talking also about very objective data being data points collected. Is design biased is what people say. I mean, this is, a, I guess, a classic research question, right? But like what I say I'm going to do and what I actually do do may differ. How do you navigate that? Because that human input is critical. How do you spot that discrepancy and say, okay, this might be something worth investigating? Yeah, I like that question a lot. Um, and yes, design is absolutely biased. Everything we do is biased. Um, and one of our jobs is to try to combat against that. Um, so always being on the lookout for it. But there are two things in particular that I find I reach for to like explore that discrepancy between what people say and what they do. Um, the first is stories. I think getting people to tell stories goes a long way towards understanding them in a more deep way and understanding what they do more than what they say they'll do. Um, it, it, you actually see this in HR when people ask behavioral based interview questions instead of just asking like, how would you handle conflict? Tell me about a time you did handle conflict. Um, similarly, when I do user research, I like to get people to tell me stories about, you know, tell me about a time you were trying to tackle a really tough health challenge. What, what did you do? What was it like? What made it hard? And we have all kinds of follow-up questions and probes that we'll ask to really make sure that they're telling us a story. But um, that's where you start to, to see what a person might actually do. The second thing is doing multiple methods of research. And so the two that I really like to pair are observation and interview. And I have this one project I worked on, it was so much fun. It was looking at um, construction worker safety. So the client who hired us does insurance and training for construction companies and their data showed that even though minor accidents have really fallen as people have gotten trained in better safety and actually equipment has improved a lot too in the last like 30 or 40 years, um, serious injuries and fatalities have not changed at all like there's there aren't a ton of them it's like 10 or 15 people a year in the united states are seriously injured or killed in a construction accident but it stayed steady no matter what happens with training no matter what happens with equipment and they were like what's going on so we did this research we went to a couple of different construction sites and we interviewed construction workers and supervisors but we also got to hang out a little bit on the site um, you know with our hard, hat, hard hats and our steel-toed boots and what was so interesting is there was a huge discrepancy between what we were hearing in the interviews and what we saw when we were on site. And that was what was the most informative thing about the whole project, because people, when you talk to them, would tell us that they make very few unsafe decisions on the job site. You know, I follow procedure all the time, unless I have a really good reason not to, or I know for sure that it's like not really that unsafe. In the first few minutes on the first job site, we saw somebody who was standing on the very top rung of a ladder not holding on to anything, which is really dangerous. I mean, if you fall from six feet, you could be seriously injured. 
So we knew right away that these, you know, these answers weren't accurate. And I, I don't want to say people were lying. I think some of it is that they knew that that wasn't the right thing to do and they didn't want to admit outright that like, yeah, I take shortcuts. But I also think people aren't always aware of the ways in which they take those shortcuts during the day. Some of it was really minor unconscious stuff. You know, somebody would be sweating and their safety glasses would get foggy and they'd push them up on their forehead so that they could see for a few minutes. That's technically a violation of a safety rule. And I don't think that the people who do that are thinking of it that way. They're just thinking, I can't see right now. So um, yeah, approaching the research from multiple angles, trying to you know get those stories and then also hearing what people say, but then watching what they do and seeing where they align and where they don't, that, that can help a lot to try to figure out, um, you know, what, what is the truth in, in so far as the truth exists. Well, Amy, thank you so much. And we have mentioned at the beginning of the episode a little bit about your amazing book. I love it because it's full of very concrete examples, which I find, you know, in this podcast, we talked a lot about theories and ideas and stories, but you actually go and dig down in a much more pragmatic way. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the book and maybe also the work you do with your agency? Yeah, sure. So the book is called Engage, Designing for Behavior Change, and it's published with Rosenfeld Media. So I wrote it specifically for people who are working in design, um, you know, whether you're a visual designer or a researcher or a product manager, but, um, you know, mostly people who don't have a lot of background in psychology or behavior change, but recognize that it could play a role in building products that people really like. So the, the title's called Engage because it's it's about building things that people can be engaged in that they um, find engaging. And then, um, you know, most of the products that I work on are also designed to ultimately change people's behavior. So that's woven in as well. It um, uses the theory, uh, self-determination theory of motivation as kind of a, a foundational structure. And I, I really, really tried to make it something that's useful and actionable for people who are working in design as opposed to something that's, um, you know, more theoretical or conceptual. And then I currently work for a company called MadPow. We are a strategic design consultancy and I work in the behavior change design discipline, but I actually work alongside service designers and visual experience designers and um, you know all kind of researchers. And we work primarily in healthcare and financial services. And one of the reasons I love to work where I work is we call ourselves, um, you know, we build things that are good for people and good for business. So to some of what we've been talking about today, we really try to explore not just how we can accomplish our clients' goals, but how we can do it in a way that really benefits people who will use the products or services. I love it. We'll, we'll link to both of these in, in the show notes for people to maybe check it out. Thanks. Thank you so much, Amy, for taking the time today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So this question of behavior change has been really following me for a while. You're going to see the next episode. We are also digging a little bit more um, into what could be considered extrinsic motivations, although up for debate. Um, and this is something that I'm uh, going to actually share a little bit later down the road. So uh, in, in a couple of episodes, we're going to be looking at just an overview of different resources that you might want to go and dig a little bit more into. Of course, it will include Amy Rucker's book, but also other references from other perspectives. Um, it is quite a complex um, <laughs> question, a complex field, and um, it's really amazing that we have people like Amy and, and like others who are very knowledgeable and are sharing so many insights from so many angles so stay tuned this list will come up in a couple of episodes and you can subscribe in the meantime to be notified when it comes